Welcome to the Cashflow Ninja, the podcast sharing how to create and grow income streams and manage, multiply, and protect your wealth in the new economy. Are you tired of trading your time for money? Do you desire freedom today instead of retirement in 10, 20, or 30 years? I'm MC Lobsher, and this is the Cashflow Ninja. Hello, Cashflow Ninjas. MC Lobsher here, and welcome to another episode of the Cashflow Ninja. I have a great show for you today. In today's show, we're going to look at the art of raising private capital. My guest in this episode is Matt Faircloth. Matt is the co-founder and president of the DeRosa Group, a real estate investment company that specializes in buying and renovating dilapidated properties. Matt and his wife, Liz, started investing in real estate in 2004 with a $30,000 loan. DeRosa owns and controls a diverse portfolio consisting of residential and commercial assets throughout the East Coast and has completed more than $30 million in real estate transactions involving private capital. Matt and Liz are also contributors to the Bigger Pockets community. If you're interested in joining our investors group, you could go to cashflowninjacom forward slash investors group and fill out an application form and or email me at info to start the discussion to see if you're a good fit for our group. If you're living in the Philadelphia, Bucks County and Southern New Jersey area, we are hosting a live investors meetup event every month in Newtown, Pennsylvania. For more information on our monthly live event and information on how to join us and come out and meet us, you could go to cashflowninja.com forward slash events. MC Lobshire, the host of the Cashflow Ninja podcast and also the president and chief wealth and investment strategist of Producers Wealth, where we help our clients integrate cashflow banking, also known as infinite banking, with their business and investments. If you're interested in learning more about how we create strategies that integrate cash flow banking and investments to turbocharge them, you can access a video series at yourownbankingsystem.com. That's yourownbankingsystem.com. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, MC. It's such an honor to be here. Yeah, so excited to have you on and so so great to connect and meet you and uh, been looking forward to this, my friend. I think a great place to start is if you just want to share a little bit about your background and journey with my listeners. Sure, sure. So I, I was um, I graduated from college with a degree in engineering, um, and I was an engineer because people told me, "Hey, you're good at math and science, so you should be an engineer." So I said, "Okay," and I didn't know what an engineer was. Um, I got my degree in that, and then I realized, "Hey, wait a minute." I actually don't want to be an engineer because engineers sit on the desk, sit on the desk, and do a lot of crunching of numbers and, and don't really interact with very many people and stuff like that. So I got myself a job in technical sales where I got to use my degree, but I got to be with people. And so I was a sales rep for seven years. Um, I had a great time doing it and enjoyed it. Made uh, made a good living. Um, and then started dating uh, the love of my life, and she got me to read a book called Rich Dad Poor Dad. And so I read that book in 2003 or, or so, um, and I decided, you know what, this is for me. I, I want to try. I want to really engage myself in entrepreneurship. Kind of found a, a bit of my soul in, in, in being an entrepreneur. And so I um, I uh, bought a bought a three bedroom, one bath, moved into one bedroom, uh, rented out the other two bedrooms to two friends of mine. Uh, the two friends of mine were each paying me $500 a piece in rent, but my mortgage was 940. 
So at like 27, 28 years old, I was making 60 bucks a month and living in my house for free and still had a good day job. Um, and that, so I was able to pay off my student loans, was able to completely get myself completely bad debt free. And in, in that I was, I had drank the Kool-Aid and I was sold on real estate investing from there forward. So when my wife and I got married in 2005, I, um, quit my day job, started investing full time and, and built my DeRosa group company, uh, started out in Trenton and have slowly expanded, um, outwards from there. And it did a lot of fix and flips, did a lot of other things, but really focused on rentals in the downturn and are now have now expanded our rental portfolio up to where we buy um, apartment buildings and turn them around and get them performing again. Now, Matt, if you don't mind sharing a little bit, because um, you started with fix and flips, you kind of grew your portfolio and now you're focusing more on, on the, the rentals, the buy and hold. Uh, if you don't mind sharing a little bit about your model, what type of, uh, what type of uh, units you buy, where you buy it, why, and what are some of the, the value adds that you guys uh, uh, provide or add to, uh, to the buildings? Sure. So we believe in workforce housing. Um, I believe in markets that have really good fundamentals. And I'll explain what workforce housing is in a second. Um, but I believe in workforce housing. I, I invest in markets that have good fundamentals, but have not gotten hot yet. So if I hear a lot of my fellow syndicators talking about markets, then I move on. Um, like you're not going to find me in Dallas or Atlanta or Tampa or Jacksonville, um, you know, or, or Phoenix or anything like that, because there's plenty of competitors already. There's enough people buying deals in Dallas or Houston, um, or San Antonio. I don't need to do that because they've got enough buyers there. Uh, so we find markets that have a lot of really good fundamentals. Um, maybe not, or maybe are not as hot and sexy as those other markets are. And, and as, as, um, as, as big of a name as those other markets, but they still have the same fundamentals. Um, and so we like, you know, several cities in North Carolina. We like several cities in Kentucky. We like central Pennsylvania. We like Baltimore, um, you know, markets that are, you know, tier two, tier three, but, uh, but have a lot of the same fundamentals. Um, when I, when I talk about fundamentals, I like to see job diversity. So not one or two employers that there are not one or two industries that are the major employers of a town. I like to see employment. That's more of a broad spectrum. Um, and that's so if there is a recession or a downturn that we can, you know, the, 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 the town has a better chance of holding up through a downturn than areas that, than, than properties that, than areas that, that don't have that, that rely on one or two industries to, to keep their, their jobs going. Um, and when I'm going back to workforce housing, I'm talking about um, just blue collar workforce, folks that earn around the median, um, you know, not not high class stuff, not granite countertops and stainless steel appliances, more uh, more baseline, um, you know, safe, livable communities um, that, that are that are more broad spectrum and open to a lot of people of different incomes uh, that, that can live there. Um, and that, cause I find markets like that in my 15 years of experience, I find markets like that to be more recession proof. Now you've mentioned a couple of things uh, of what you guys are focusing on and where you're focusing and what you're purchasing and why, um, it, a deal comes across your desk. <laughs> what is, a, is there a framework that you draw from or a checklist when you evaluate that to see if that's something worth looking into and exploring? And uh, uh, looking into a little bit further? Yeah, so we, we have a, a, a checklist that we use for evaluating a new real estate market that we might invest in. 
Um, that is a lot of the, it's a lot of the things I just talked about. And then if a new deal comes up, we have, we do something called a phase one analysis where we look at the local crime around the property. We look at the micro, the micro median income around the building. So I, I'll look at the median income by block around the property. Um, and I make sure that it matches or it's in line with the median income or higher than the median income of the town that it's in. Um, I make sure that people that live around the property could afford to live in the property, you know, meaning like if I qualify them based on three times uh, the rent as a as a rental standard, I make sure that they have that coming in. Um, you know, so just I also look at proximity to other assets too. That's all part of our phase one checklist. And if the property passes the muster for a phase one checklist, we'll move forward to a phase two where we formally underwrite the deal and run the numbers and determine the value add that we're going to do and, and find out how we're going to bring it to, to market uh, to market rate numbers. When you're building teams on the ground in, in those markets, what are some of the things that you look at that worked really, really well um, entering those markets, building up relationships and building formidable teams uh, to take care on the management end of things? Yeah. Well, you got to understand the market to begin with, right? So like, I'll give you an example. We're in Lexington, Kentucky is one of our markets. Um, if you're not, if you if you don't already invest in Lexington, you might not know that in, in Lexington, it's very common for the landlord to pay all utilities on a property. Um, all utilities included is very common in that market. It's not common in most other markets, but it's, it's extremely common in Kentucky for a variety of reasons um, in that. So if you don't have local boots on the ground, local people that understand that marketplace, you will miss that opportunity to, op to offer up property with all utilities included. Um, and that, and that, that helps you compete better and you can actually get a nice premium and, and better profitability offering that up if you know how to structure it. Um, and so boots on the ground are imperative in, in markets. And we build that up by, um, I, I leverage a lot of bigger pockets, uh, communities through, through, through building local boots on the ground for us. And also we make sure that our property manager has an extremely strong presence and presence in the market that we're in, that we're looking at. Yeah, you mentioned bigger pockets. Let's talk a little bit about drivers too, because I can point to a couple of things that have really helped my business and drive my business. Um, and I'm sure you can as well, bigger pockets being one of those, building relationships and introductions and so forth. What are some of the other things that you can look at from if you take a kind of like the 30,000 foot view for, uh, over your business? What, are some, what have been some of the drivers that have really propelled it? Um, we, I mean, bigger pocket has been phenomenal for, for building our business. I think that also transparency has been, has been great. Um, we've taken very good care of our investors. So we get a lot of referrals that's helped us build our business. Um, we have a strong background in landlording. Like I said, I've been landlording for a very, very long time. So I kind of, I, I know certain fundamentals that it takes to invest, um, in, in long-term property. I don't take too many risks on big, on deals that have big, shiny, dollar signs attached to them. I'll back away from deals like that, or I'll, I'll approach them cautiously. Um, this is talking to you offline about how we backed out of other deals that, that sounded good on paper, but just were too much risk associated with them. So we've built a brand for ourselves that way um, about being a company that's pragmatic and, and, um, and, and just, we also have longevity because we're not, we've been around since pre-recession, which not, not many other real estate companies can say that. So we've, we've been around since before the recession in this business. So I think that also helps us out with our brand as well. 
And that ties into my next question. You mentioned uh, recession, and um, I'd like to get your thoughts on the the current market cycle, where you think we currently are. And then, um, you know, a lot of folks talk about a looming recession. What are some of the biggest lessons that you learned from uh, the previous one through that? Some of the things that you've seen, and then maybe some. Uh, maybe if you want to share also some of the things that you're doing to positioning yourself and your company uh, to not only survive, but thrive in an extra session. Sure. So, I mean, <clears throat> what do I think that we're going to look at an extra, another recession? I think that um, to just use language simply like, Oh, we're due, you know, I mean, I, I that we're due to have one. It's kind of like you and I sitting by the roulette table and saying, Hey, you know, MC, this table hasn't hit, uh, you know, uh, the, the double zero in a really long time. So we should bet on it. Right. Um, right. It, it completely does not make sense to say that that's why we're, we're going to have a recession is because we haven't had one in a long time. That said, the people that I that I hold a lot of respect for um, tend to believe that we are looking at that because a lot of it's just a lot of things are starting to slow down. And um, and, and also, I think that it's uh, in some ways. A lot of people that I know that I respect also all think we're going to have a recession so that it might be just one of those self-fulfilling prophecies uh, because everybody thinks that there's going to be one, that there's going to be one, right? That could be it as well. Um, all that said, I'm, you know, the people that know more than I do are starting to prepare for it um, and that so out of respect and, 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 um, and just be, because it's not something I want to get caught in, uh, we're being overly cautious right now and just preparing ourselves for, th- for, for what could be uh, that. I don't think it's going to be a doomsday recession like the last one was like an absolute you know you know what hitting the fan kind of thing i think it's going to be more of and you know things getting cut in, in half in value and stuff i think it's going to be more of like a long-term slowdown um and and less aggressive growth and and less uh you know double digit growth all the way across the board like we've seen in the last couple of years um i think it'll be just a like i think we're going to hit a glass ceiling for a little while and we'll probably linger We'll probably stay at the levels we are now, but with a lot less velocity for a while. That's what I think. Um, what uh, the, in my business of real estate syndication, I think that the way that we have prepared for it is we underwrite our deals with a strong slowdown baked into the sauce. Meaning, we underwrite our deals with a higher cap rate when we sell. You know, we we will say, okay, we're going to sell this property in year five. Okay, let's put in a way higher cap rate five, you know, five years from now, not way higher, but, you know, a, a marginally higher cap rate, cap rate for five years from now versus where it's at now. Um, I noticed that some of my, and I'm not knocking anybody specifically, but a lot of syndicators do not do that. So when they underwrite their deals, they'll show today's cap rates and today's market conditions five years from now, because some other folks believe that nothing's going to happen in the next five years and that and the party's going to keep on going for five more. We are more conservative than that. So I think that's how we're preparing is we're preparing for, I would say the worst, because preparing for the worst is probably not not worth it, but we prepare for a, a more conservative outcome over the next couple of years when we project how our deals are gonna do, and our hope is to outperform it from there. Now, you have a, a impeccable track record as a landlord too, seeing that side of the business and man- the management side of that, which, <laughs> property managers i mean you could write books and books and books of stuff that you've probably seen right yeah. uh, it's some of the interest more interesting people in any networking event is talk to a property manager because there's they are, they are the best stories oh the best yeah. stories yeah, yeah. Now, I, I, so I've, I've had you know my youtube channel and i've just sat down for a beer with some property managers and i've just said tell me your craziest story 
Yeah. Like your craziest tenant story. And you have no idea the things I've heard, man. I mean, from these property managers and stuff like that. So, and then this is coming from a guy, I was a property manager for about 10 years um, on my own. And I just recently got out of it. And, and so um, I, I did it on my own as well. And I don't regret doing it. It was fun and, and it was necessary at the time. Um, but uh, to grow where we needed to grow, we had to let it go. Yep. And that was going to, uh, my, my, my question on that too is, what are some of the things that you learned uh, that's a massive advantage coming from that property, property management side of it into then the buying and the syndicator side? Mm. Um, I, uh, and the property management side, I mean, I, I learned the humanness of tenants and I, I learned to never forget that these are people and, and, uh, and everything like that. And so I guess I got to know a lot of my tenants. And so I saw the human side of, of management of, of real estate. And I think it's unfortunate that, you know, in some ways tenants, some tenants have that mentality that they're, you know, they're just going to try and screw you or they're going to try and, you know, find a way to get one over on their landlord or whatever. Um, but a lot of them are just good people and, and that. So I don't think that, that, it, it, that it is an adversarial or it needs to be an adversarial relationship. Um, between an owner and their tenants. I don't, I don't, I firmly don't believe that. Some other owners I've talked to view it as a push-pull adversarial relationship. I, I think that it's a matter of providing them a, a fair and honest roof over their head and, and treating them with respect and dignity, but also demanding the same from them. My company mantra is to transform lives through real estate. Um, and that, so that, that doesn't mean that they get to live in the Taj Mahal, but they get any more than they're entitled to. Uh, but it does mean that I, I have to treat them with dignity and respect as a, as a property manager. I learned that. That's the biggest thing that I learned as a property manager. Uh, on the syndication side and on the, on the old property ownership side, um, I've had to balance the humanness of it to the financial side of it and also taking care of my investors and taking care of me and my family and, and having to consider that side of it as well, you know, um, and to consider the, the other side of, of the equation. So. Yeah, a lot more stake, a lot more stakeholders, right, and a, and a lot more uh, things. But it's so important. It's uh, is, as you mentioned, the message, the central message that sometimes in business, you know, you have to, you're doing it for a certain reason, as you and as you mentioned, transforming human lives through real estate, and it's it's about providing affordable housing for folks. So. Um, because, and because of that service, you know, we get to enjoy the lives uh, that we have, right, and that we live. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, that it's a win-win, right? So if I can create a good quality existence for my tenants and exceed their expectations and do the same for the people that work and live uh, by my company. So that could be an employee or a partner or someone who works for someone who works for my company, like a property management company's employees or whatever. If I focus on that and also focus on building my investors' wealth and hold those all as just as important as the next, then, then we've done what we're here to do. You're listening to The Cashflow Ninja, the show helping people all over the world create monthly cash flow and achieve freedom today, not in 10, 20, 30, and or 40 years. This is a show where cash is not king, but cash flow is king. We will be right back after a word from our sponsors. My friend Dave Zook says, you can be conventional or you can be wealthy. Pick one. Dave and his team at The Real Asset Investor have syndicated many successful real estate and ATM projects 
over the last decade. Now his team has an exclusive opportunity for investors in the coal space. Do you want to be part of an energy project that takes conventional coal and cleans it up by extracting liquids while releasing almost zero emissions? The sale of these liquids can produce strong double-digit cash flow and aggressive tax benefits against ordinary income, all while using America's number one most plentiful resource in a responsible, efficient manner. Now that's non-conventional. For more information on this exclusive opportunity, you can visit therealassetinvestor.com or contact the Real Asset Investor team at info at therealassetinvestor.com. Are you having a hard time finding great investment properties? Unfortunately, the best deals are rarely found locally. Successful investing begins with the right properties in the right markets. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best deals across the United States. Our simple proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly cash flow. Learn how to find the best deals by downloading your free copy of The Ultimate Guide to Passive Real Estate Investing at noradarealestate.com. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com. You're listening to The Cashflow Ninja, the show helping people all over the world create monthly cash flow and achieve freedom today, not in 10, 20, 30, and or 40 years. This is the show where cash is not king, but cash flow is king. Now let's return to our interview. Now, Maggie, uh, you've got a f- fantastic book, uh, Raising Private Capital, building your real estate empire using other people's money. And uh, you uh, do a great job sharing how to raise capital and also the stressing the importance of the responsibility of taking money from folks and, and uh, taking being a good steward of that. What are some of the biggest things that you've learned about raising capital that you can share? Uh, maybe there's, there's a couple of things that have, uh, that have helped you um, as well in your efforts of building your, out your business and scaling your business. Sure. So uh, absolutely. And, and so in my book, Raising Private Capital, I talk a lot about you know, b- building um, your investor network out of your own backyard. And I've talked to a lot of people that have said things like, well, I don't know anybody with money. Um, well, it's very, I think that there's a lot of things behind that statement that, might, that, might, that person might actually just be saying that I don't want to go out and raise money or I'm not comfortable asking people I know for money. That's probably what they're really, really saying is I don't want to ask people I know for money. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I think that if you're willing to gut check yourself and the book talks about this, about getting comfortable enough with your business, that you see your business as a, as a means to provide wealth to the people that you know and respect, you know, um, and that, uh, if you can get beyond, I don't want to ask people I know for money, then, um, then you can really unlock the treasure troves of, of uh, private money all around you. And I submit that most people, I mean, unless you just literally are hanging out with completely the wrong people, um, that, uh, that most people know people that if it's, if explain if it's explained to them properly, and if they really, uh, if, the, if they're given a chance to get it and ask the right questions, then most people know plenty of people with money. You know enough people. We all know enough people right now that we could go out and buy a large apartment building um, or, or do a large real estate transaction if we know the conversations to have with our network. And so that's what the book really is about. Is is about you already know your, your private money network. You just need to look at your network differently. Absolutely, and I think one of the things that um, that's so important, and uh, uh, you do a phenomenal job at, and a lot of folks do another phenomenal job, is also educating people that where there's 
potentially sources of funds for them already, right? So there might be money in areas for people that they don't even really know that they have uh, to utilize for certain real estate investment transactions. I mean, just right off the top of my head, I'm, 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 I'm thinking, you know, IRAs, you know, qualified no. retirement plans that could be self-directed, right? I'll give you some stats, right? So there's uh, $4 trillion in IRA accounts in the U.S. right now. I've actually heard, I just read this. So I heard that from one IRA custodian. Another IRA custodian told me it was $9 trillion. So it's, it's a big, it's a big number of amount of money. It's about a money that's sitting in retirement accounts right now in America. Um, of that money, 3% of it is invested in anything outside of Wall Street. Okay. Um, 3%, you know, and, and still, first of all, that's still 120 billion, right? Um, so that's a lot of money to begin with, but it also gives us all as real estate investors and an opportunity to open up um, what we do to those around us so that they can build their wealth somewhere else aside from Wall Street. And I'm not going to knock Wall Street. Um, I could, but I'm not going to. Uh, because I, I did still a place that, that people can do well for themselves, but it's as up until now, it's been one of the only horses that you can ride to wealth. Um, if you want to do pass, if you want to passively invest real estate investing allows people to take their retirement account, uh, because of the, because of things like self-directed IRAs, um, to people to take their retirement account and put it in, put it to work in other vehicles. Like I know I got a friend of mine who owns a horse in his IRA. Uh, you can buy jewelry in your IRA. You can buy, I think you buy jewelry. I know you can buy um, bars of gold and all kinds of other crazy stuff. And you can also invest in real estate with it. So it's well beyond Wall Street, but most people don't realize that. I think it's up to us as, as real estate investors to be also be educators of people around us about what they, about what they really can do with their retirement accounts if they wanted to. Absolutely. And, and, you know, we've talked on the show too, you know, obviously uh, being on the insurance side of it, that there's so many folks that have capital available and in certain insurance contracts that they're not aware of. So yeah. Uh, yeah, IRAs is another one of them. Think of all the equity trapped in homes, right? Not doing yeah. anything. So not, not paying you anything at that stage. So there's a lot of creative ways to educate people and share with people um, exactly, you know, that, yeah, you might have a lot of funds available that you're not even aware of. So My that book they talks a lot about that. My book also talks about how to find people around you that might actually be sitting on, like, you know, your aunt Sally may have, you know, $300,000 sitting in a CD right now and in, in her, in, in her bank, earning her a half of a half of a percent. Yep. If aunt Sally was aware, you would be willing to pay her 8%. She, you could have an easy customer right there. Yep. Yeah. Just think about it this way too. Um, you know, the demographic shift happening in this country, what is it? 76 million baby boomers are, yeah. are coming into retirement and the, uh, you know, at 70 and a half, there's required minimum distributions, meaning they have to take money out of qualified retirement accounts. And what a lot of folks are doing because they don't know where to put their money because, you know, as you mentioned, you know, a uh, CD is paying you an extremely sexy 0.0, .0 you know, something. <laughs> um, there's opportunities with that as well, because uh, like I mentioned, it's got to come out at 70 and a half. It, you know, they, they yeah. have to take a certain amount out of there. So they could invest that in real estate in, in something that produces a monthly cash flow check. Um, additionally, a, a lot, and this is the other side of it. Um, th there is an enormous transfer of real estate wealth going on right now through baby boomers that I've met. Like the last three deals, I'm about, about, about to be my fourth deal. The last three deals I've done, soon to be my fourth, 
uh, of multifamily that I've bought have been is have been purchasing the property from baby boomers, from baby boomers that that were you know in, in their 60s, 70s, that that were you know mom and pop landlords or just landlords in general you know, in, into their latter years and are now unwinding, getting out of the business or, or gave it a go and, and now want to get out of it or whatever. Um, those have been the, the best sellers I've dealt with because um, they don't want to, they don't want too much hassle on they've, they're used to doing it their way, but now they want to just get out. And there's a ton of baby boomer real estate owners out there that are liquidating their portfolios, cashing their chips um, or just, you know, are aging out and have maybe held on for too long and are now looking to let go for a really good price just so they can get out. I think it's a, there's a phenomenal opportunity for for picking up a lot of those baby boomer owned assets. Absolutely. Now, one of the the towns uh, that you've operated in is Trenton. Um, maybe some of the listeners are not familiar with it. I was quite impressed with certain areas. There's definitely some revitalization going on. Uh, what are you seeing? What are you seeing in the town? And what are some of the developments there? Well, Trenton's a, it's a tale of two cities in a lot of ways, man. You've got a lot of political infighting and a lot, and it, it's a town that, um, that, that has had a, the, the t- this town has had a hard time getting out of its own way in, in a lot of ways, um, which is unfortunate because it's got a, a ton of assets here. You know, Trenton, so here's what's good about Trenton. It's very close to New York City. It's got an extremely high speed train line that goes from it to New York City. Um, it's got beautiful architecture. It's a small, manageable town, so it's not this gargantuan, you know, megapolis or anything like that. It's a small, manageable city, um, and uh, and then it's got great, great assets and good highways and good immovable things that go in and out of it. And it's also on the water. Um, Trenton needs uh, before it like really breaks open and becomes the next Baltimore, Maryland, or the next uh, Hoboken, New Jersey, or whatever. There are a few things that need to get cleaned up. It does have a reasonably high crime rate. It does have um, a lower, like a, it, it has an, un, um, an uneven population of, of low income people. Um, and that's okay, but just there's not enough other ends of the spectrum to balance all that out and, um, and everything like that. So for a lot of reasons, uh, Trenton has gotten dumped on over the years. Um, I think that there is a groundswell of redevelopment happening in Trenton. There's new apartment buildings being built. Um, there's new employers coming in. So I think it's a good time to get into Trenton now um, because it hasn't gotten hot yet and it hasn't gotten, uh, the, the secret's not out yet. So, and then you can still get really good deals here. Uh, we're already fully exposed to the Trenton marketplace. We're not, we're not looking to buy any more here. I'll tell you that. Um, and, and it's not because we don't like it. It's just because we've already got a significant portfolio here. We're looking to diversify and get another markets on top of it, but I, we still believe in the city. Gotcha. Uh, now, one habit I've observed from wealthy and successful people is that they're always studying new subjects and learning new skill sets. What are you currently studying? And what do you, what skill sets are you currently learning? Um, I'm, I'm, lear- I'm currently studying, um, uh, you know, finishing up Brandon Bouchard's uh, high performance habits. Um, I, I'm, you know what I'm working on right now, MC, is personal efficiency and, and about like how do I really leverage other people and how do I really focus on like really, really hone into my greatness and just stay live in what I'm great at and not do anything else that I'm not great at. So we've been researching. I think I'm the one person I know that doesn't have a virtual assistant um, and that. So I'd like to get into hiring a VA, but I want to do it the right way because I know a lot of people that hired them because it was hip to do it. And then they end up firing them because they didn't manage them properly. So um, I want to get into leveraging other people's time and building 
And like, how do I sustainably build something? Like kind of like a la the E-Myth, which is a book from years ago, but kind of like, um, you know, how do, how do I take that and bring it into today's language for my, for my company? So that's, that's what I'm really studying right now. Now, a core message in our show is to leave our families, communities, and the world better than we found it by passing down a mindset, values, and principles to future generations, not just money. So, Matt, if you cannot pass on any money to future generations, and we're only allowed to pass on three principles to them to build wealth and achieve happiness and success, what would they be? That's great. So, I've got a five, you know, you and I have, have talked offline about, you know, you and I both are, are fathers of young kids. Um, and that to really become something that I think about a lot about what I want to convey to not my, my daughter's two, my son's five. Um, and so I really think a lot about what I, what I want to convey to my son as he grows up to be a, you know, a man of the world, a man in the world. Um, and that, and the first thing that we teach him regularly is gratitude. Um, every night when he goes to bed, I ask him, you know, what are you grateful for? You know? And, um, and what do you love about yourself? Those are his two questions he gets every night when he goes to bed. Um, and sometimes you got to dig it out of him because he might've had a bad day, but at least I can get him back to gratitude before he goes to sleep. And some days it's easy, you know, uh, for him to spit those things out, but he knows that that's coming. Um, that's number one. And the, the next thing I want to convey to him, and I wish, um, more folks in the world would really see things this way is to see themselves in another. I think that we focus too hard um, in, in this world on making other people wrong or on, on black and white, yes and no, or, you know, looking at people through their religious beliefs or just looking at people through the way that they, that they view the world themselves, uh, what their political background is, whatever it is. I, I, I try and teach my kids uh, a bit of, of seeing that we're all human, on, on, like that, that we're, you know, kind of all spirits on a human journey, uh, and, then, and, we're, and then we're not perfect and it's okay. Um, so for him to... Um, you know, just kind of forgive his fellow man fairly easily and forgive himself too. Um, so that would say, you know, just gratitude, seeing himself in another and then um, being willing to, so th this is uh, this, this next one's, I, I, I still teach my son this very, very much. And that's, we don't say the words I can't um, because I think that most successful people I know uh, are just people that tried that one last time. And it's not that they never failed. It's just that they tried again after they failed. And I've failed a bunch of times. I've had you know, a bunch of, of awful things happen to me that, that people probably would, that other people may have quit when, when, they happen, when it happened to them. Um, but we didn't. We kept going. And so I think that the concept of not quitting and dusting yourself off and trying again, no matter what happens, I don't care if you lose your legs, like dust yourself off and try again. I think that that will create so that will create long-term success. The only people that I know that are failures are ones that quit, um, and that. So, so uh, those are my three. Those are great, and I, and I love those questions. So, thank you for putting them out there. No, I enjoy that. That's very powerful. And one of the things that just came to mind uh, when you mentioned the never giving up and, and never quitting is, of course, Tiger Woods just won yeah. the Masters, right? And um, there's a clip that somebody forwarded me about asking Tiger at, at the press conference something to the effect about, you know, did he, what would he share about, you know, not giving up or something like that. And the facial expression of Tiger said everything. It was almost like a foreign concept to him. It was almost like saying a word to him that he didn't understand. <laughs> he was looking at the guy like, 
I don't know. What, what do you mean? What do you mean quitting? Like that? And he was like, that, that's not, it's not ever an option. You don't, you know, it's, uh, right. so, you just don't do that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah he was like, uh, I, I'm sorry. I'm not familiar with that concept of quitting. <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand what that word means. Right. His facial yeah. expression was like, and when I saw that, I'm like, it's just, that's priceless right there. Cause it really is. Yeah. That's brilliant. That's brilliant that he, that, uh, that that's so ingrained into his psyche yeah, quitting is not even a possibility for him. Yeah, yeah. If you're ever going to see him triggered about something, he was probably triggered, saying like, "What? What? What? What do you mean, quitting? Are you kidding me?" No, yeah. never. <laughs> so. I, I can only hope my that I can convey that level of conviction to my son. You yep. know, um, and that I, that's that's why I know I'll, I will have succeeded when I've created um, a, a grateful, forgiving, not quitter. <laughs> you know. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Matt, where can my listeners learn more about you? Where can they follow you? Where can they stay in, in touch and informed of all the projects that you're involved with? And where can they grab a copy of your book? Sure. They can do all of that, including getting a copy of my book at derosagroup.com. That's D-E-R-O-S-A-G-R-O-U-P.com, derosagroup.com. Everything that you just talked about is there. Um, my book, they can register as investors with us or if they want to hear more about investment vehicles we do offer because we do offer passive investments. You have to qualify both of them and you have to be, you know, we have to vet you and interview you. We don't take on just anybody. So um, we have to have that conversation. You can register for that conversation on our website. And you can just hear, learn more about us and our background through that website as well. So that's derosagroup.com. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and always a pleasure to speak with you and providing so much value for my listeners. Well, you're quite welcome, man. Thank you for having this show, and, and thank you for the honor of being here with you today. Life settlement investments have allowed financial and banking institutions to not only buy their equity contractually, but also diversify their capital from any economic, market, and geopolitical risk. It's been part of the billion-dollar blueprint followed by institutional investors. And if you're an accredited investor, you can also now participate in this vehicle with enormous growth potential. You can watch an informational webinar presented by one of the premier organizations providing life settlement investments for number of solutions at cashflowninja.com forward slash life settlements. Thank you again for joining me on the Cashflow Ninja. If you like what you hear and appreciate what we're trying to build here, please subscribe, rate, and write a review for our show on iTunes and share our show with family, friends, and your network. If you're not a subscriber to our newsletter, you can sign up for our newsletter at CashflowNinja.com. I want to thank you for spending your most precious resource with me today, your time. Until next time, my friend, live a life of passion and purpose on your terms.
This presentation is for educational and informational purposes only. The information being presented and considered does not consider your particular financial objectives or situation, and it does not make personalized recommendations. This material is not intended to replace the advice of a qualified tax and legal advisor or other qualified professionals, and you should not use the information in place of a customized consultation with a licensed professional regarding your specific personal financial objectives, situation, and needs. We believe the information provided is reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy, timeliness, or completeness.